Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. So glad to be here today with you, to be here with the Lord, obviously. How good is the Lord to us? And I know that some of our lives, at times, uh, if there's a word that could describe some of the times in our life, maybe this doesn't apply to you. If it doesn't, just close your ears and forgive me. But sometimes in life, we have what is called drama. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Is it just me? All right, thank you. There's somebody back there that knows what I'm talking about. Drama. And even the word drama, the word dramatic, can cause something to arise in us. It, it, uh, in, me, I, you know, in my notes, I just put some kind of a feeling can arise. Uh, when a person comes up and you think there's more drama attached to that person, whatever person's going to say or do, something happens inside of you. For some, they've had enough drama in their lives, and, and so they cringe when they feel like more drama's coming down the pike towards them, or when someone's coming to add a little more to their drama total in life. They cringe. They, they're not so keen on that. And still others, and I'm, I'm going to even look this way. I don't want to look at anyone. <laughs> but still others absolutely love drama. They are very proficient in the world of drama, and I'm not talking about stage. I mean, they are adept at creating drama in their lives, transferring their drama to other lives. You know what I mean, and again, I'm looking up there. I'm not looking at anybody. But more seriously, etymologists, those who study words, they tell us that the word drama, the word drama, comes from a Greek word. It's actually a borrowed word as, you know, come seeped into the English language. And, and really, English is a gun of language. It's a language that has stolen many words from many different sources. And drama is one of them, one of many Greek words. And the Greek word, the baseline idea for the Greek word is that of a play or an action, an act, a drama. And the ancient Greeks, when you think about it, some of you are probably more aware of this than even I am, the ancient Greeks were well known for their love of the theater. They loved the theater, they loved the stage, they loved acting, and it, it, in some ways we gained a lot from that. For example, the English word hypocrite comes from the stage, the Greek language idea of the stage, and the, the actual, the root meaning of the word hypocrite from the Greek is stage actor, pretender, or to use the modern colloquial saying, a phony, hypocrite. 
And most, uh, when you look up that word, it'll give you some definitions. I thought one was particularly cute, especially for a messianic synagogue. They said uh, an example of a hypocrite, and this was the example they gave, example of a hypocrite would be a vegan vegetarian who tells everybody they're a vegan vegetarian and then goes home and has bacon for breakfast. Now, let's call it turkey bacon here, but bacon for breakfast. And that was the example that they gave. It was on vocabulary.com that they gave for the word, you know, hypocrite. Well, the book of Genesis, if you're familiar with the text, depicts quite a bit of drama. There's a lot that happens that's quite dramatic in the book of Genesis. We could even say from the very first verse, Bereshit met the In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very beginning of it, that's pretty dramatic that God created the heavens and the earth. I consider that dramatic. What a start for the word of God. It starts out, Bereshit bara Elohim. God created. God created the heavens and the earth. And then as we read further in this week's parasha, this week's sedra, as we read further, we are introduced to humanity, to humankind. We call them Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, as if that was kind of like their first names, Adam and Eve, but humankind. And humankind, as we read, if you've read Bereshit, uh, the portion this week, or if you're familiar with the biblical narrative, you realize that through the whole story of creation, that humankind ends up being in a place different from all other parts of creation. Why, the question is asked, why is humankind, humanity, mankind, why is humanity different than the other living creatures of creation? And the answer is simple. It's recorded in this week's parasha. Genesis chapter 5 verse 2 says that male and female created he them, and then it says he created them in his image, in his image, which distinguishes humanity, if I could use that term, from all the other creation. Now, we know over the many uh, millennia of existence that humanity in various parts of the world has worshipped creatures. Archaeologists love when they find uh, a pestle, a, an idol that's in the form of a lion or the idol that's in the form of something else whether it's in Egypt or ancient Israel among the Canaanites or far over uh, in, in the areas of China where they see these forms, these, these creatures that mankind was worshiping. And to archaeologists, that's a, a, a boon. That's a big plus. But Scripture tells us that later on when we get to Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus, says you shall not make any graven image there. And that connects back with what we read in this week's portion, that mankind, humanity, was created in the image of God. Understanding that becomes complex. What does that mean, created in the image of God? And as drama comes forward, the dramatic comes forward in the book of Genesis, we also find ourselves in a very dramatic place. A dramatic stage, if you would, a dramatic venue, and that is God Eden, the Garden of Eden. 
And I don't know what you think of and what comes to you when you think of the Garden of Eden. I know there's some health food products named Garden of Eden and all that, but I don't know what arises in you when you think about the Garden of Eden. But suffice it to say, before the fall of mankind, it had to be an incredible place. Think about it. What an incredible place. And God created that, and man was placed in the Garden of Eden, the first man, Adam, first woman, Chava, the mother of the living there. And all seemed to be going well. In fact, one of the quandaries of the book of Genesis is the time frame. I mean, how long did things go well in the Garden of Eden? How long did everything go hunky-dory, was hunky-dory, or everything was roses in the Garden of Eden? How long did that period last? The text never tells us. So we're left to uh, creative surmisings about how long were Adam and Eve in in Gan Eden in the Garden of Eden, and everything went well for them. But as there is with many dramas... (laughs) dramas in life, when a new person enters the scene and they are drama king or a drama queen, a new individual enters the scene in the Garden of Eden, and we know him as the serpent. The serpent. All was going well with Adam and Chava, with Adam and Eve. And then there's a new player on the stage, the stage of existence. He's called the serpent And later on, he's identified very distinctly in the book of Revelations, chapter 12. Let me read that to you, beginning with verse 7. It says, And Milchaman, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Notice this next verse, please. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives, we also know him as the deceiver, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So what we the, what were initially introduced, this new player on the stage, the serpent, all the way up to the book of Revelation, he's still mentioned in Revelation. In fact, not only is he mentioned, but he's mentioned in many different terms, such as dragon, serpent of old, devil, Satan, deceiver. That causes great drama when he gets on the stage. And again, to repeat, we don't know how long things went well with Adam and Chava. We don't know the time frame where there was no issue with them, where they got along well. There was no issue at all. And then there's a new drama that comes in, the serpent. And I hope you had a chance to read uh, the book of Genesis, at least the first uh, parashah this week. If you haven't, you're probably familiar with the narrative, how it goes But not only is the evil one called the names dragon, serpent, devil, Satan, deceiver in Revelation 12, but Yeshua in various parables refers to him in other ways as well. In the parable of the differing soils, I didn't know how else to express this parable with the differing soils, uh, Yeshua likens the evil one to birds that snatch the seed 
off the hardened ground. And in another parable, Yeshua likens him to the sower of weeds among the wheat. And then he's also in the Brit Hadashan, the New Covenant. He's described as a wolf in John chapter 10, verse 12, seeking to devour the sheep. And then also Kepha in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, describes him as what? A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Let's read what happens, because really, uh, uh, when you think about it, this new player on the scene of creation causes great drama that persists to this day. It persists in nations, it persists in families, it persists in some of our individual lives. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says, and it describes, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. I don't know what you get out of that, but if I didn't know this text at all and I read that, I would think, uh-oh, something's about to happen. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, he said to Chava, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And verse 4, if we're looking at textual crux points, in certain texts of the Bible, you can find points within the text, within the paragraph, that are crux points. They're absolutely critical. They're, they're game-changer points. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What do we get from that? He totally contradicted the word of God, what God said. Genesis 3, 6, just a little bit later, explains what happened next. And you're well familiar with this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, <laughs> that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So in one section, in one verse, we see this whole transition within the creation where woman and man, both willingly, I might add, both willingly, let's not cast aspersions upon women because Adam was just as willing and did it as well, a little different mechanism, but both of them did what they knew was not right. They disobeyed. And it's with this development, God added in the Garden of Eden, we learn that sin, sin found opportunity through the fleshly desires of Eve that Adam. Did you notice what it says when the woman saw that the tree was what? Good for food. That it was what? It was pleasant to the eyes. That it was what? A tree desirable to make one wise, which sounds like a high, high you know, aspiration. But they both gave in to fleshly desires. Different reasons, same result. They willingly chose to disobey God due to 
the deception of that new player on the scene, deception brought forth by the evil one. And Romans chapter 5, verse 12 states this. It says, through one man, sin entered the world. And death through sin. For the wages of sin's death. And thus death spread to all men because why? Because all sinned. Now, I know I haven't met over the years. I've been a believer a long time. I've met over the years people that thought they did never sin. <laughs> and you're laughing, but they're very serious about it. <laughs> that they are Mr. and Mrs. Righteous. And they've never sinned. I mean, they're not sinning now and all that stuff. But I just like think that that's a bad player on the stage in my life there. Because it says here in Romans 5:12, death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. And as Genesis chapter 4, and again, I encourage you to read these chapters, and the events surrounding the very next scene we get is in Genesis 4, which is Cain and Abel. Purportedly the first offspring of Adam and Eve. These two brothers, Cain and Abel, sin which had been held at bay for an indeterminate time frame before the fall of mankind. Sin proved to be alive and well among the very two first descendants of Adam and Eve. Alive and well. And the dynamic that led to humanity's devastating fall is expressed here in Genesis. It's critical for us if we're going to really grasp what happens later on in the text of Scripture. We must get this beginning part, see what it says, grab hold of it, and realize that it influences all the rest of Scripture. There's an unwritten law in biblical exegesis called the law of first mention. When something's first mentioned in Scripture, look at it carefully. The first time it's mentioned. Sin is first mentioned here. The serpent's first mentioned here. And all disobedience to God is first mentioned here. And then there's Cain and Abel. Because there's this dynamic that began to work, and we see it immediately in Cain and Abel's life, particularly in Cain's life. This dynamic, and I would call it a, a lethal dynamic that begins to work. These two brothers with the same parents, born in the same places, eating the same food, uh, all that. But this dynamic begins to work. It, it runs something like this, and Scripture shows this clearly. Satan sows doubt about the Word of God. He sows doubt about the very nature and character of God. How many people blame God for some of the worst things that happen on earth and never think to blame humanity, a fallen humanity? He sows doubt about the power of God and, and, and would love people to believe that God is not powerful anymore, that he's limp, that he's unable to do anything. And the enemy is working overtime, and, and we can characterize it all within, with that word. He sows this bad seed about the character of God. And it pops up in lives where an individual says, God doesn't really love me. God doesn't really care about me. God won't take care of me. God won't provide for me. It's, it pops up. And unfortunately, mankind so often given to selfishness 
literally laps up the lies of the enemy, laps it up, laps it up, believes it, gives those lies place in their own lives. And we've all done it. Let's be honest about it. Lies, lies like I just said, that God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about my situation. God doesn't want to help me. Those are really lies. Scripture refutes all that. And humanity, with its many fleshly weaknesses, and they vary from person to person. We don't all have the same weakness, but in general, there's no temptation that's come upon you, but such as is common to mankind. But God is faithful. There, it speaks of his character in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape so that you can bear it. And humanity, with all its fleshly weaknesses, so often believes the lies of the devil. And then, and this is where it gets insidious and very dramatic at times, begins to act upon those lies. Paul wrote, Rav Shaul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he wrote about what I would call the, the dire state of humanity and the... the uh, Actually, the good, the good thing that he has for us, for the wages of sin is death. That's the dire state of humanity. But the gift of God is eternal life through Messiah, Yeshua, our Lord. We each stand before God in our daily lives. When we're alone, we are before God. When we're in this congregation, we are before God. When you're at the workplace, you're before God. When you're with your family, you're before God. When you're interacting with your friends, you're before God. And we are liable before God, who is holy and sinless and above all else. The consequence of sin, that is death, just as it was for Adam and Eve and their descendants, still affects us today. Here's what the New Covenant says. Despite how some may assess their own virtues, <laughs> their own Torah observance or their own personal actions, again, let me say, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, that seems like a desperate place, but if we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then we are all candidates for the salvation that comes in Messiah Yeshua who forgives our sin. We've all become candidates for redemption, for grace through faith in Messiah Yeshua. And sin and disobedience to God have major temporal and also eternal consequences. Again, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. It's clear, I think, that the punishment we reap for our sins is death, not just physical death, but as some call it, eternal death, this total separation from a holy God. Speaking of that, notice Isaiah chapter 59. In this chapter, Isaiah 59, there's a, a frank perspective on mankind's sinfulness that's presented 700 years before Messiah came. Here's what it says in 59 verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, that it cannot hear. 
And then verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This is Isaiah. This is not New Covenant, although it's quoted in New Covenant. And Isaiah 59 continues by describing what I would call a litany of sinful actions, words, and attitudes that cause the Lord's face to turn away from people, people like you or me. For example, in Isaiah 59, verses 3 and 4, it says, For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. Verse 4, no one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words, and they speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. And increasingly, and I'm sad to say this, this seems to describe modern society. Not only here, but throughout the face of the earth. Isaiah 59, 12, same chapter. If you have a chance, read Isaiah 59. It's very potent. There's a realization in Isaiah 59, 12. There's a realization of this. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, O Lord. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. And Isaiah paints a bleak picture there of man's sinfulness in comparison to God's utter holiness. There's this comparison that Isaiah brings. And Isaiah 59 also brings us to the same place generically, generically, brings us to the same place generically that the new covenant brings us to specifically and indisputably. Those who choose to turn, those who choose to repent, who choose to repent from their sinful ways, who choose to repent from their sinful ways and look to God for his solution to their situation, to his solution to their drama in life, they choose to look to him. Isaiah 59 also offers it a tremendous statement of hope. It's in verse 20. It says this, 700 years or more before Yeshua was born in Nazareth, it says, the Redeemer will come to Zion. And... To those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Those who turn from transgression. Is that your testimony today in your relationship with the Lord? Have you turned from transgression? Or let me put it in a, in a more honest sense, and I'm being totally vulnerable here. But you're in a process of turning from your transgression. It's a process sometimes. Repentance should be a complete about face, and sometimes we don't really see where we're off, and we need the Ruach HaKodesh to show us. Sometimes we need a good friend or our spouse to point out to us, hey, that's not right what you're doing. And we should appreciate that kind of a word. But listen to this again, Isaiah 59, 700 years before the birth of Yeshua, he says, the Redeemer will come. The Redeemer will come to Zion. The Redeemer will come to Zion, and he will come to those who turn from transgression. A person who's willing to turn from their sin, humble themselves before the Lord, 
There's a redeemer for that person. There's really a redeemer for all mankind, but not everyone's willing. Some of us have been in that category in our lives. We weren't willing to turn to the Lord. So Isaiah 59, 20, the one that's described there generically, is specifically pointed out in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, I've already read it a couple times. But the gift of God is eternal life through who? Yeshua the Messiah. Uniquely so. There's no other name whereby we can be saved. There's no other redeemer for us than Yeshua the Messiah. And not only is he for us, the Jewish people, or for us, the nation, he for all humanity, all descendants of Adam and Eve, all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there is a redeemer for that person. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, expresses it even more. It says, but God demonstrates what? God demonstrates his own love towards us. Friends, don't buy into the line that God doesn't love you. That's a lie from the pit. He does. And if you wonder how you can get over that, think about the tree, the execution stake, the cross of Yeshua. There's love displayed in front of all humanity for all to perceive. God demonstrates his own love towards us. And this next statement has always touched me deeply in that while we were still, while we were yet sinners. Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus Christ, died for us. So each of us and all people of all nations and backgrounds, we need to know Yeshua the Messiah. We need to know that Yeshua willingly laid down his life for us. No one took it from him. There's love. That's how God demonstrated his love sending his son. We should bank on that. And hallelujah for the next thing I'm going to say. Because when you think about it, Yeshua's resurrection from the dead, that the grave could not hold him, his resurrection from the dead, offers us proof, offers us, if you will, eternally affirms to us that Yeshua's death as the payment for our sins has been received in the heavenly place. He rose from the dead, and he's seated at the place of power, the right hand of Hashem. There he is. It becomes abundantly clear what we read in Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Yeshua as Lord, do you do that? Do you confess him as Lord? Do people have to guess about you? Do they have to guess that you're really a believer? Do they have to kind of figure it out, or do you give them puzzle pieces that they have to put together? Or do you let them know that he is your Lord? I'll suggest to you, yeah, you may get a little flack at time in some places, but it's much better for you to be point blank about it, that he's my Lord. I follow the disciple of Yeshua. I follow him. It's much better for you that if you confess with your mouth Yeshua is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, guess what? It's four words in Romans 10, verse 9. It says, say it with me, you will be saved. Let's say that with a little more oomph, all right? You will be saved. A redeemer has come to Zion. He came at the exact right time, 
born as was prophetically pronounced in many prophecies about him, born in Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem, willingly given his life. He's the good shepherd. He's the light of the world. He is our Yeshua. He is our salvation, the Redeemer, Yeshua, the Messiah. And Romans 10 verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, say these last three words with me, will be saved or shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Yeshua willingly came. He paid the penalty for your sins and my sins. Don't let that be a trite thing for you because the penalty was stiff because we, from our ancestors, Adam and Chava, all the way forward, sin has been an issue for us. Sin and sinfulness and all connected to sinfulness has been a place of great drama in our lives, has caused us much drama at times, some of our sinful ways. He rescued us. He rescued us from eternal separation from the living holy God of the universe who created all things. Romans 5 verse 1 has what I call a wonderful message to all who trust in Yeshua. And I pray that to you today. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, trust, we have peace with God through our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. I know when I first became a believer that that was the key for me. I saw individuals around me, and I was very much not a believer, individuals around me that seemed to have peace. They had shalom, and I didn't seem to have peace in my life. And maybe you're here right now, and you're going through a lot, and the peace is fleeting in your life. It says, we have peace with God through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. And as Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. When I plumb the depths of why some of those around me, when I came to the Lord, had peace, they gave me one word, <laughs> a one-word answer. You can guess what the word was. It was Jesus Yeshua. Because of him, because of him. And Romans 8, verse 38 says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. And you can see in this verse the tie-ins all the way back to creation. Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God as in Messiah Yeshua. So rather than forsaken fallen mankind, which we read about in this week's portion, it's parsha, rather than forsaken mankind, and mankind would include you and me, that's not what God did. Actually, he identified with us, yet without sin. He took on the form of flesh like us and lived among us. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, that God was in Messiah Yeshua, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. 
And guess what? We have a commission. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You know, in conclusion, only God possesses the power. Only God possesses the the perfect measure of justice. Only God possesses the purest love. Only God possesses the eternal willingness. Only he could do this. The eternal willingness to do for humanity what humanity could never do for itself. We could not save ourselves. How many agree with that? You could not save your own soul. Nonetheless, anyone else, not even your own soul. Only God could do those things, and God did so through Yeshua, his holy son. He redeemed us. He ransomed us. He ransomed us from the grip of the enemy. We introduced the enemy today because he's introduced in this week's portion. And he's a drama. (laughs) He causes a lot of drama in life all the way till now. But guess what? We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Our Messiah leads us in the victory procession for his name's sake. Will you please pray with me? Father, we praise you this day. We thank you this day, Lord, that in your great wisdom, you did not cast off humanity when humanity disobeyed, when our ancestors, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, disobeyed. You did not cast them off eternally. But from the very beginning, you gave them hope that a seed would come. And you foresaw that all humanity would be in the clutches of sin. And you foresaw and you provided for salvation to all who would call upon your name in truth and in trust and in love. Lord, thank you for your wise plan. Thank you for your abundant mercy and compassion. And most of all, thank you for your holy son, Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.